0: I'm going to do tonight is, uh, this will be the third lesson in what we started dealing with the uh, uh, passages that have been used to teach the second coming of Christ, or so-called second coming of Christ, and tonight we're going to back up somewhat into the Old Testament and spend some time there just looking at certain uh, situations, and... One of the things I want to say at the very beginning, that in studying this subject, that we're not saying that there's not going to be an end of the world and a judgment. There, there's plain passages in the Bible that teach the world is going to end and that everybody's going to be judged. Uh, the passage in Hebrews says it's appointed on the man once to die, and after that the judgment. Uh, in the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, commentators debate whether that's a parable or an actual event, but there's no question that whichever it is, he's talking about the fact that when people die, that there is a judgment and that that judgment is final and that there is a, 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 be it in the presence of God or an eternal separation from God in a very unpleasant situation. So suffice it to say that there we're not dealing with the fact that the world will end and there will be a judgment and that everybody will give account of himself. We're dealing with... Uh, passages of Scripture in the New Testament that have been used to teach something called the Second Coming of Christ. And I say uh, something called that because the term Second Coming of Christ is really not in the Bible. Uh, What is in the Bible is that every time there is a judgment situation, it is referred to as a coming. Whether it's the coming day of the Lord or the coming of Christ in the New Testament, any judgment situation, is referred to as a day of the Lord and a and a coming of God in a, in a certain sense. I noted at the very beginning that I got into this study through the back door, and that is I really didn't uh, enter in to study it as a subject. But coming from a background of studying Christian evidences and also reading the works of unbelievers as to why they rejected the Bible, Uh, that I realized that one of the evidences given against the inspiration of the New Testament is the passages of Scripture that Christians use about the Second Coming of Christ. And all through the centuries, unbelievers have used that as evidence against the inspiration. All through the centuries, there have been young people brought up in believing homes, who have went to seminaries, and who have become unbelievers of the Scripture as a result of studying those particular things and and things that tie it in. And that is that the reason this has been the case is that when this coming event is talked about in the New Testament that is applied to a second coming of Christ that is is supposed to happen, the time frame that is given is always one for that generation. And it's always one of an immediate thing that they're looking forward to. That's the only time frame that is given. And uh, all through the centuries, there have been times when Christians have applied that to tell people that the Lord was ready to come because of all these signs and all were happening in that generation. And I began the, the series by looking at a newspaper when Saddam Hussein had reached his zenith of power, and, and we was having that problem in the Mideast, that there were headlines in any number of paper and magazines that many of the religious leaders were forecasting that now we was in the last days, or the end of times, because of what was happening over in Saddam Hussein. And so all of those passages were used. Well, it didn't only happen with Saddam Hussein, it's happened any number of times through history. World War II, uh, the war, Jewish War in 67, uh, when Israel became a nation in 48, uh, World War One, and you can move on back through history, that any time there's been some big calamity, some... Uh, event where people were shaking swords at one another and things looked pretty bad Uh, Christian preachers have used that as the signs for the end of time and they've got everybody all ready to go and ready for the time to end if you'll remember in recent years uh, a book was published and became a bestseller saying that everything was supposed to end in 1984 and Then he said he missed the date and it would be 1988 Uh, in 1843 uh, there was a fellow by the name of Miller uh, who preceded L. G. White in the founding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, who had everybody waiting for the Lord in, 83, in 1843, and then in 1844 he said he missed it by one year and they were all waiting again. Well, any number of times through the centuries, there have been Christians that have been worked up to a fever pitch waiting for the Lord to return because of these same passages in the New Testament, always the same passages used over and over again. Uh, down the street... In this very community I live in, just a few weeks back, one of the churches, a big sign of the Lord is coming soon, you need to repent. Uh, over and over through the years, I've heard people motivated to repent on this concept that the Lord is coming soon, that the signs are right, and so what is used to motivate them to repent is that the world's about to end, uh, and, and you need to go ahead and repent b- before it ends, and, and it's been used as a, motiv- as a motivation thing all, all the way through the years. Well, every time that he, he doesn't come at the, at the time that's set, they said, well, it says he'll come as a thief in the night. Uh, you know. And then the Christians argue back and forth on that, that. We've got these signs on the one hand, but on the other hand, it would be like a thief in the night. So in reality, the signs don't do you any good because you don't know what's going to happen anyway. And so one group thinks the signs tell them everything. The other group say the signs don't tell them anything. When we go to the new testament the time frame is always that generation of an immediacy type thing so anyway that's where my study got in on that particular event well as i studied it there's some things i found out that was very interesting to me uh, i started going for example and reading the various commentators uh reading the various books that dealt with the dating of the bible and things of that nature one of the ones that interested me was uh A commentary by Foy Wallace, Jr. on Revelation. I don't know, Alba, you're familiar with Foy Wallace, Jr., correct? Both of you all are. Uh, For years, one of the absolute top scholars in Churches of Christ. Uh, I don't guess there's any man that's ever held more meetings, held more debates, or written more books within Churches of Christ than Foy Wallace, Jr. Uh, A a very conservative individual, uh, believing in the plenary inspiration of the Bible, uh, wrote for articles, edited papers, uh, and thought of as a renowned scholar, right up to the town that he died. Well Wallace debated denominational preachers uh, on the subject of premillennialism, which is the belief that Christ, when he comes back, will set up a reign here on this earth for a thousand years. And of course, Wallace did not believe that, but he did believe in the in the coming of Christ and 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 he recognized that they spent a lot of their time in revelation. So, anyway, this set in motion a lot of study for him and research in the area of Revelation. And I'm reading now from Wallace himself. Like other students, the author has in the past attempted to tread the tangled maze of future prophecy theory of Revelation from AD 96 through the Dark Ages to the end of time. And like all others who did so, he bogged down in the meshes of the wilderness. Such an effort is as traditional as the Catholic calendar of Popes, from the Apostle Peter to Pope Paul VI in 1963. It is as erroneous as the Baptist claim to the chain of succession back to John on the banks of the Jordan. The links simply fall out. Historians use the word anachronism, meaning an error in the order of time, taking an event out of the period to which it belongs and assigning it to a wrong period of time. The multiple theories asserting that Revelation is a book of future prophecy are simply out of time. The internal arguments, the contents of the book itself, are preponderantly negative to the future fulfillment theories, as many of the best scholars have already admitted. After many years of intensive study, it is a calculated conclusion of the author that the symbols of Revelation were fulfilled in the experiences of the early church that it bears a pre-destruction of Jerusalem date and that it is prophetic only in the sense of an apocalyptic, ap- 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 I even lost the pronunciation of the word. Pronounce
1: that.
0: Right, I don't know why that lost me. Apocalyptic, apocalyptic, okay. The use of symbols. Description of the struggle of the early church with the Jewish and Roman persecutors and the spectacular and phenomenal victory over pagan and persecuting fires. He then goes ahead to state that he believes that, that it applied to the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the Jewish nation, and also dealt with Nero and the pagan powers at, at that particular time. One other, by the way, I didn't... Just for time, I'm reading two on there. It's Foy Wallace, Jr. This here is one of an eight-volume set on the history of the Christian church by Philip Schaff. Uh... The Philip Schaff is like the his history of the Christian Church is like the Encyclopaedia Britannica uh, to religious students. In other words, the other one-volume histories of the Christian Church repeatedly quote from this this here. It's considered the most extensive work uh, and the most renowned and the most respected in that in that realm. This is his second edition, and here's a comment that Schaff made on two points. I have changed my opinion since the last edition the second Roman captivity of Paul, which I am now disclosed to admit in the interest of the pastoral epistles. The second point I have changed my opinion on is the date of the apocalypse. That's revelation. Which I now assign with the majority of modern critics to the year 68 or 69 instead of 95 as before. Notice he said that that the majority if this is at the time he wrote it would be even greater now that the majority of critics place revelation before 70 a.d the theologians may preach it otherwise you may pick up a bible and see 95 or 96 in it but when it comes to the majority of the textual critics themselves the vast majority they place it before 70 a.d and the destruction of jerusalem one other book i'll allude to uh a.t robinson A scholar from uh, within the Church of England, and again, world-renowned for his scholarship on the documents of the New Testament, and recognized scholar as a scholar by people in all various religious groups, published a book that came out within the past few years called Redating the New Testament. In his book, he places every book in the New Testament before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, including Revelation. All right, these books that have changed, like you might say in your mind, what caused Philip Schaap to change his opinion, this great historian. What caused Robinson to change his opinion? What caused Foy Wallace to change his opinion? And what caused a host of other top scholars from all religious groups to place all of the New Testament before that? And what you'll go back to each time, and I've got the books, and again, it's just too many to bring up and try to go through each one. It's the archaeological discoveries, especially the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. An examination of the Dead Sea Scrolls and many of the, of the later archaeological discoveries have changed the dating of a number of the books in the Bible. Uh, for years, books in the Old Testament that were classified in the myth category or characters such as the uh, the Jebusites, the Hittites, uh, and the other in other groups of people that you read back over in the Old Testament, scholars put them in the myth category. They said we have no verification for them. Uh, there was a time when uh, people said Moses couldn't have written Moses because that writing wasn't even invented until 1,000 years before Christ. And, and the Old Testament was actually, the law of Moses was brought down to about 500 years before Christ. All right, it's the archaeological discoveries that have come about in the last century or so that have changed the dating from the scholarship on all of those things. And now nobody puts those stories in the Old Testament in the myth category. Nobody argues with the dating of those events in Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah and things like that because archaeology has verified and, and collaborated the information that's in the Bible. In the same way, scholars had always recognized that the internal evidence for, Reve- for Revelation was a pre-destruction of Jerusalem time. They've always recognized, go back and read even Adam Clark, a conservative Methodist scholar, and I guess every Church of Christ preacher in the country has a set of commentaries by Adam Clark, like I do. He he, uh, even recognized and is bothered in his commentary by the fact that the internal evidence favors destruction of Jerusalem, but yet he had the date to deal with of 95 to 96 AD. The reason that the internal favored it is because Revelation was obviously written at a time when the Jews were a persecuting force against the Christians, when they were still a viable force, when the temple was still still standing. And that's obvious, the, the book itself, that it's that in, in many ways. And so scholars have always recognized it and they had problems with it. The dating of 96 came about because of a, an early church father in the second century of a comment that he made that in turn was quoted by somebody else, Irenaeus, and so Polycarp is quoted by Irenaeus, and the quotation is, is such a nature that it could actually be interpreted in a couple of different ways. And based on that statement, Revelation and the writings of John were dated after 70 AD. It wasn't just Revelation, it was all five of John's writings. And John, of course, lived, did live to be an old man, and we've got him alive somewhere in the 90s. But the argument... For the dating of the material hinged around the language. And they said that this particular language that you find in John's writing and in Revelation, we don't find until the second century. And therefore, it, it, it simply had to be written at the very latter part at, at best. Well, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find that all of the language, all of the symbolic figures, all of that apocalyptic material actually goes back to the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, two centuries before Christ, and that it was in viable use, and all of that language that's used was used then. And so then they began to look at it and other information that came forward, and the end result was that not only Revelation, but the Gospels got placed before 70 A.D., and that is where the majority of critics put it at the present time. Now, the biggest thing in, in trying to move it forward is that you've had centuries of Christian preachers taking the book of Revelation and dragging it through the future, applying it to the popes in Rome, applying it to futuristic events, and then eventually culminating in a com- in a coming of Christ at the end of time. Well, see, if, if Revelation was indeed written before 70 A.D., all of that goes out. It's all down the tubes. Because it's obvious that that you like I said, the internal evidence is always favored. The fact that it that the Jews are a viable force, Revelation makes it clear that there is a persecuting force against the Christians that is going to be dealt with and judgment will come on them. And that there is a pagan persecuting force involved and judgment will be rendered there. And then that Christianity will fill the earth, that the kingdom of God will spread. Well see it's a historical fact. That the church was a was an insignificant little sect from the standpoint of the world and was persecuted by the Jews and the majority of the Jews never did become Christians and they were doing everything they could to hinder the gospel but then after that big war between Israel and Rome and the judgment on Israel and Jerusalem and on the temple Christianity then burst out of the carcass of, of, of Judaism and filled the earth and went into all the gentile world and, the, and they set themselves apart as the people of God, that the, the prophecies of their apostles and the Lord had been fulfilled, the Jews were exposed as a people that had crucified their Messiah. And so that event took, took place there. So you, began, you read, when you pick up a Bible and you see the introduction to the, the various books, almost invariably 95 or 96 will be in Revelation. The reason most people don't challenge it Is because you have a tendency to challenge things that are being debated around you if everybody seems to accept it there is no tendency to challenge it and so if every Bible you pick up has 95 or 96 there you just think of it as a set fact if you would challenge it and read the scholarship involved you would find that the majority of the scholarship and the majority of all the the critics that deal with the manuscripts and all place it before 70 AD and it hangs there simply because it's been there for years, going back before 1947 and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And and we have a lot of Christian ministers that, through the years that have made a lot of mileage on Revelation. Uh, I've gone through it, and I've beat the Catholic popes over the head so as far as the beast is concerned and everything like that and drug it all through the centuries, just like Wallace mentioned that he did. And all, what happened there with all those commentaries, Most of these commentaries in the Protestant camp is written by a group of people coming out of Catholicism. And the Pope was a bad guy on the scene. And so when they went to Revelation, it was just so easy to label the Pope as the beast and to drag that thing on through the centuries and then have this final coming of the Lord. In fact, the Seventh-day Adventists to this day are looking for the, the Lord to come back and to pass judgment on this big monster, the Catholic Church, and redeem his true people which of course for them will be the people that's uh keeping the seventh keeping the seventh day sabbath all right suffice it to say that all i'm saying with all of that is that i came in the back door in studying that i didn't set out to discredit any so-called second coming of christ never even thought about it and that is where the study came from and i was just simply surprised at at what i found out now another thing i found in studying this is that most people, most Christians I should say, are not well studied in the Old Testament. They read the New, they read individual books in the Old Testament, like Psalms, they read Genesis. Most are not well studied at all, studied at all when it comes to the prophets of the Old Testament, okay? That, and, and so far as the language and things of that nature that's used. And the end result is, when they come to the New Testament, there is a tendency to read it without that background. All right? The Bible of the early church was not the New Testament. There was no New Testament in the first century. The Bible of the early church was the Greek Septuagint, the Old Testament Scriptures. And these letters, we were a number of years into the church before we even began to get these letters. For example, the, the earliest date that I know that's placed on any letter is about 49 a.d or about 16 or so years after the beginning of the church on pentecost and that's 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 the earliest one right in that category we come all the way to the end of the first century and you will not among all of the early writings you will not find a single group of christians that have the entire new testament they just don't have it it's been written it's individual letters and individual gospels all to these various churches And these letters are in the process of being copied and circulated. And we will actually get up into the second century before you will find the church with all of the New Testament documents. So their Bible was the Old Testament and the preaching of the apostles. And so when the apostles preached and these people examined the scriptures, the scriptures they were examining was the Old Testament. And then these letters began to be written and circulated. But the Bible of the early church was that, and they read it, and of course the Jew had been brought up on it, and he was familiar with it. All right, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Jesus is preaching to the people, they don't have a New Testament. All they have is the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus is preaching to people from an Old Testament background, and he's preaching from their Scriptures, and he's using exactly in his own teaching the same kind of language, the same kind of phrases that he had in his mind from having read and studied the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, all his life. Uh, One thing I'd like to read, and then before uh, getting any further into it also, this is a new book. In fact, I'm about halfway through it, I just started reading it the other day, on the second incarnation, but uh, it's got a section in here dealing with just simply reading the scriptures. This is by Rubel Shelley and Randall Harris. Uh, Randall Harris teaches uh, Christian Evidences at David Lipscomb College, Uh, Shelley used to teach at Lipscomb, right now he's a minister at Woodmont uh, in, in Nashville. And so anyway, in one chapter of this book, he's got a section on interpreting the scriptures and why that we have divisions and why we don't always properly understand things and things of this nature. Now here's a few comments from him. Most of us come to scripture, bring to our reading the heritage of a particular religious tradition okay saying that when we come to the bible all of us or he should say he used the term most of us there we bring a particular religious tradition to the bible our own heritage many of us have deep personal ties and commitments to these traditions it is of course inevitable that such experiences will have an impact on our interpretation well this is not just us look at the apostles when jesus came in the in the gospels obviously they were the most devout people around, and that's why Jesus picked them to be his apostles. But look at the interpretations of the Old Testament that had been given by the religious leaders of that day, and note that the apostles believed almost all of it. And and the biggest problem that Jesus had in his ministry was trying to counteract the interpretations of the Old Testament by the pharisees and the sadducees and the herodians and the zealots and the Essenes and the other religious people of that day for example they all believed without exception that the kingdom of god that was coming was going to be a physical kingdom where the messiah would come and he would live in jerusalem and he would live forever and there would be a literal bodily resurrection and all the great pop- prophets would be raised And that they would there would be a messianic reign from jerusalem and the rest of the world would be blessed because israel would reign over the whole world through their messiah the son of david and so they were at a fever pitch waiting for that type of kingdom to be set up in reality jesus had to fight them constantly and make such statements like the kingdom will not come with observation so that you can say lo here it is or lo there it is the kingdom of god is within you that he had to let them know that the kingdom is not going to be a physical entity. Another time he said to them, speaking to the Samaritan lady, he says, the time is coming when neither in Samaria or in Jerusalem will you worship God. That it it really won't matter where you're at when you're worshiping God. That the true worshipers of God worshiped in spirit and truth. He then taught them that the seed of the kingdom was his word. It wasn't going to be won with the sword. See, Israel was ready to go to war. By the way, this is why Israel went to war with Rome. Remember when the soldiers come to get Jesus? Peter does what? And one of the others. Remember what Peter did? Got his sword. And he was ready to go to war, right? Got his sword. He's ready to fight. Lord, we'll never let this happen to you. While the Messiah is supposed to live forever. John 12, 34. Peter denied the Lord, not because he was an unbeliever. He was thrown into a state of confusion. That Jesus rebuked him, healed the person that Peter tried to kill, and then allowed him to take him off meekly like a lamb to kill him. It blew Peter's mind. He didn't know what to do. And so he wound up denying him three times, a third time, cursing. This is not Peter's Messiah. Some that would tell him to put down his sword, to allow himself to be crucified, well, it was written in the law cursed is anybody that hangs on a tree. So he, he allowed that to happen and, and it took Peter all the way to the 10th chapter of Acts eight years into the church before he finally understands that the kingdom of God is for Jew and Gentile and it's strictly a spiritual entity and it's not going to be reigned in, uh, from, in from Jerusalem. All right, there were any number of things that they misunderstood. All right, I'm simply saying that all of us, me too, when we read any material, I don't care if it's a newspaper, a magazine, or whatever it is, you bring to bear for your understanding the information that you have in your mind and the concepts you have, all right? What Shelley is saying here is that when, when a person from a Baptist background reads the Bible, why does the Baptist church constantly produce young people that are Baptist? And the Church of Christ tends to produce young people that are members of the Church of Christ, and the Methodists tend to produce young people that are Methodist, and yet they're reading the same Bible. I'm talking about as a general rule, isn't this what happens? What happens when a Baptist missionary goes to Africa? The people become Baptist. What happens when when we send a missionary to Africa? they set up a Church of Christ? What happens when the Methodists send a missionary to Africa? They set up a Methodist church and 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 they, and they begin to produce Methodists. And I'm not saying that there's no crossing there or there's nobody that studies and gets beyond that. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that as a general rule, all of us come to the Bible with a certain amount of baggage from our heritage. Some of that baggage may very well be good, but it's not all perfect. And we bring that to our interpretation. And so all Shelley is saying there, he said he acknowledges that he has that. And that we all have. He's simply saying that if we're going to be good students of the Bible, don't approach it from the standpoint that everybody else's heritage is wrong but mine is all right and by the way that's one of the great mistakes within the fellowship i've been a part of it's like we are the only group that is approaching it with a heritage that is right and so therefore we're the, we we've got we've got got an edge up on everybody that we approach it from a heritage and that means that we come to it with a certain amount of bias like like everybody else so he says it simply will make you a better student. And, and, and you need to be examining yourself and saying, now, am I interpreting this because of my background, or is that honestly what the text is saying in its context? All right, now, here's the next thing he states on the Scripture, uh, on interpreting, let's see. Failing to see the human side of revelation, we may find ourselves reproducing first-century culture rather than producing the message embedded therein. And then he goes on to to some processes that you have to use in interpreting. He says there is, first, historical analysis. This is an attempt to understand the culture and the history of whatever text one is studying. Since the Bible comes from ancient times and distant places, we do this kind of research to understand the customs, language, forms, and analogies used in Scripture to convey the will of God okay to illustrate the point consider first corinthians 11. and he goes ahead and points out how you read that a woman is to be covered with a veil etc and he says you cannot fully understand what's going on there unless you go back and study the culture and realize the uh, what a veil was for in that particular time and how it was used okay he says the second step in interpreting is literary analysis we frequently hear people complain i was quoted out of context well has any of you ever made that complaint before have you ever thought that somebody took something you said out of context and made you say something that you really didn't say? We've all had that experience happen. There's not a one of us that haven't had the experience of where it actually aggravates you, at least it does me, when when somebody said, you said such and such, and I'm thinking, yes, I, you know, I used those words, but man, I didn't mean that. The context I used them in was was completely different than what they're giving a the credit to. Well, He says that we frequently hear this. The biblical writers could surely make that complaint. Literary analysis is the attempt to place a verse of the Bible in its proper context by looking at the nature and flow of the larger piece of literature in which it is found. We can correctly understand passages of Scripture only as parts of their larger context. Okay? Notice what he says there. There is a tendency... Again, I don't know about your background. I don't know how many times coming up in the church that I sit in a class and and, and, and we're studying, say, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Okay. Sister so-and-so, would you read two verses? Brother so-and-so, you read two. Brother so-and-so, you read two. And everybody reads their verse. Sister so-and-so, what does that say to you? And brother, and everybody gives their opinion on their particular verses that they read, okay? And this was sometimes, I've seen in classes where we go through the Bible that way. Read a few verses, give their opinion on the particular verses. Notice what he's saying is that every single verse has to be understood within its larger context. The Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. Hebrews was written as a document that was intended to be read in one setting. It was never intended for somebody to read one chapter today and one chapter next week or something like that. Hebrews was intended to be written in one setting. 1 Corinthians was never intended for somebody to study it for three months. I'm not saying anything wrong. I believe in study it for three months. I'm saying it was initially written to a congregation, not in chapters and verses, but as a letter. And it would be read in its entirety in that setting. 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelations were all written as letters not in chapters and verses where somebody would read that entire letter in one setting and by the way expect those people to understand what was read by hearing that letter okay and i'm not saying you can do that today we'll get, in, get into that but i'm saying they did they read it and they understood it in one setting okay so it says that you don't grab a verse of scripture and try to work out the meaning from that individual verse but rather you look at the entire book that it's in, and then you look at the entire section that's being dealt with, and then you understand it from that realm. Okay, now, here's the next statement. Uh, for, he's talking about the next step is considering the diverse literature within the Bible. He says, most people are aware that the largest number of New Testament books are letters. Okay, we all realize that. Most of what we call books Are in reality, letters. Okay, says, As a distinctive literary type, letters are occasional documents. They speak to specific problems of specific people in specific places. We cannot read them as if they were sent directly to us. Otherwise, we may apply the instruction to a situation the author was not even talking about. We thereby harm both the original text and our present situation. Consider the interpretation of poetry. We know that poetry often speaks in figurative language and thus cannot be read in the same way as an essay. Or what about the fascinating symbols of the book of Revelation? We strongly protest a kind of proof texting that pulls verses out of the Bible without proper consideration of its context and genre. Okay. What he's saying there about different letters and uh, different books, each of the various letters Or, material that we have in the New Testament was written for a reason. When Paul wrote a letter, Paul was not sitting down there thinking of Christians 1,000 years from now or 2,000 years from now, and I'm going to write some theology that they can take my letter, put it together with James' letter and Peter's letter, and, and they can understand what I'm saying. Paul wrote the letter to Corinth, or he wrote it to Timothy, or he wrote it to Titus, or he wrote it to the Thessalonians. And he was writing a specific letter to those people dealing with their situation. And he was specifically addressing things that they were involved in at that point in time. Just like when you and I write letters, we know the difference between a book and a letter. If I write you a letter, it's going to be with dealing with situations that we're involved in at this time. On the other hand, I might write a book as a treatise on some particular subject. We find all kinds of writing in the Bible. We find songs with all kinds of poetry. We find literally multitudes of figurative-type language. We find books that are written, and we find individuals writing letters. All right? When we read a book like, for example, Isaiah in the Old Testament, or Daniel in the Old Testament, or Ezekiel in the Old Testament, or Jeremiah in the Old Testament, I can remember when I first started to study those books in in years back, I'd sit out and I'd read Jeremiah, and I thought of it like a book that Jeremiah wrote. It's not. And Isaiah didn't just sit down and write the book of Isaiah. What you have in Jeremiah is a collection of sermons that Jeremiah preached, beginning at about 527 and coming on down to about 5, or or I should say 627, and coming on down to about 586 B.C., So this is a group of sermons that Jeremiah has preached that has been collected together. In fact, a lot of Jeremiah's material, he tells you himself, he dictated it to Baruch, and Baruch wrote it down. In Isaiah, the same way, Isaiah preached from 740 to 690 BC, 50 years. He didn't sit down and write Isaiah in a few days or a few weeks. Isaiah is sermons that was preached over a period of 50 years. And the same with the other prophetic books. They were sermons that were preached during the lifetime of that prophet. And then what we have is a collection. So if you're going to understand Isaiah, you don't go to Isaiah and open it up and say, I'm going to read Isaiah and understand it. You can't do it. You notice in the introduction of Isaiah, and Isaiah said, I prophesied during the reign of Uzzah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He tells you that he prophesied in the reigns of four kings. Okay? You go back over to the period of history where those in the, in the Old Testament where you have the history of those four kings. And you will see who Israel was fighting, when they was at war, who was king, what was the situation and everything. And you identify the period of time that Isaiah was preaching in. Then you come over to Isaiah and you begin to read the sermons that he preached when Hezekiah was king. The sermons he preached when Uzzah. The sermon he preached when when Jotham. And the sermons he preached when Ahaz. And then you take those sermons and you understand what he's talking about because you put it in its context. There is not a single soul alive that can pick up Isaiah in and of itself and read it and understand it. And I don't care if he's a genius because you don't have the information until you read that history. Not only that, Isaiah was a preacher of the law of Moses. And he is preaching every sermon with the assumption that his listeners are devout students of the law of Moses. And and that's their constitution. That is the constitution of Israel. It's like we have a constitution. The law of Moses was their constitution. So when a person comes to Isaiah, and I don't don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, well, you know, I, I just can't understand Isaiah. Study the law of Moses. Study the period of history that it was written in. Then come to Isaiah and read these as individual sermons written during that period of history as a proclaimer of the law of Moses and as one who is also speaking of a Messiah to come. And then we begin to get a grip on what Isaiah is saying. Now, I've said all that simply to say this. Studying the Bible requires work. It, it, it's not like I was told that you just pick it up and all you need is a Bible and, and you read through it. The Bible was completed almost 2,000 years ago. And it was written over a period of a couple of thousand years. And it was written in three different languages. And and, and God was revealing himself to men in their language at that period of time and in their culture. All right? The initial people could read it because they lived in that culture. They had that language. and, and And the initial recipients of it could sit down and just simply read it initially and get it. But like any historical document, you and I now, we have to come back here and we have to look and say, hey, I need to know something about the language. I need to know something about the culture. I need to know something about the geography. And and then after we learn something about the language and the culture and the geography, we put ourselves in the position of the initial recipients of this material. Okay? And so all of that is involved. So... When you read, read the letters of the New Testament as a document that was intended for you to sit down and read it as a document. Not read a couple of chapters one night, a couple of chapters. Sit down and read that document as a letter. Put it in its historical setting. Ask yourself, who is writing this letter? What is his situation? Does he tell me? Who is it writing it to? What are the problems he's dealing with? And then look at it from that standpoint. Now, all I want to do tonight is go back in the Old Testament and look at language, and we're going to read around and look at language and make any comment you want to, and all we want to do is deal with a language that is used throughout the Bible and is consistent and comes all the way up into the New Testament. And the first place, if everybody has your Bible handy, turn to Isaiah the, the 13th chapter. All right, Mark, would you read on the 13th
1: uh,
0: verse 1, verses 6 through 13, verse 17, and verse 19. Can you remember that? Verse 1, verse 6
2: through 13, and verse 17, and verse 19. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Ammar, Saul, okay, verse 6. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction of the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go in. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces are plain. See, the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty, and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Oprah. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will shake from its place, at the wrath of the Lord Almighty, in the day of his burning anger. Verse 17 mm-hmm. See, I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. In verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylon's pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah.
0: Okay. Who's he talking about, Mark? In the context. Babylon. Okay. Is it a judgment on Babylon from the context? Yes. Okay, who is the source that's going to judge? Uh, The Medes. Okay, the Medes. Uh, And then Babylon's to be destroyed, right? Okay, when he says, uh, looking at that context, he's talking about Babylon, and by the way, did the Medes actually defeat Babylon? They, They did. Was Babylon, in the final analysis, actually destroyed and wiped out? It was. All right, but in the process... Did the stars of the heaven and their constellations quit showing their light? Did the rising sun become darkened and the moon not give its light? Did Verse 13, did the heavens actually tremble and the earth shake from its place? All right? Then obviously, that's figurative language, right? All right, now, here's a commentary on Isaiah by a fellow by the name of Butler. I could duplicate this. It's just one. Uh, this guy teaches in Ozark College, it's one. It's a college uh, owned by the Christian Church, and the men that wrote these commentaries simply had taught these particular subjects in college, and then it was their material that they developed into book form. Here's his comment on Isaiah, uh, the, the 13th chapter. He said, speaking about the judgment, he says the Jehovah using the secondary means of the Medo Persian conquest is going to lay vast, lay waste the massive and powerful Babylonian Empire. He said it would be as if God had turned off all the light of the world. When a government and culture like that of Babylon, which had such influence over the world, comes to such a sudden and chaotic end, it would seem as, as if the Universe thirty one, three hundred fifteen, Amos eight, nine, Micah three, six, and Matthew twenty four twenty nine, he gives us examples of this. It is a figure that depicts downfalls of anti-God human structures to such an extent that men turning everywhere and anywhere for light and hope find only darkness and despair. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was such a downfall of Judaism that those who had rejected the Messiah and Christianity were victims of the wrath of God and it appeared to them as if the sun had darkened and the moon turned to blood. And he gives Matthew 24, 29. All right, notice there what he's saying is that, first of all, that this language that you read is very common among the prophets. It's very common. And it's quoted over in Matthew, and he said that the same thing applied when we had the destruction of Jerusalem and in 70 AD. Now, suffice it to say, even before you went any further anywhere, could you look at this and say that... Whenever you come to a phrase, wherever it's at, where these type of events take place, the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens tremble and the earth shake off, would you look at that and think, well, that has to be a literal thing, or would you at least have to think there's a possibility that this is figurative language? I mean, there'd have to at least be the possibility, wouldn't it? And uh, And he's using it in that way. Now, Come to the next one in Isaiah 19. All right, uh, Mark, would you read that please? Uh, Mark Moore, 19 and 1 and, yeah, verse
1: 1 there. An oracle concerning Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within him.
0: Okay an oracle concerning, he's talking about Egypt, correct Mark? He says, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. And he says, I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians. Now, can we easily see that there is a judgment situation depicted against Egypt? There's some kind of judgment coming on Egypt. Okay. Do you believe the Lord literally rode a cloud into Egypt? Did the idols of Egypt literally tremble when he rode that cloud in? Did the hearts of the Egyptians literally melt within them? In other words, if you was reading that, would you think that the Lord literally rode a cloud there and that the idols literally trembled and the hearts literally melted? Or would you just look at it as a judgment on Egypt and... Figurative language, a poetic metaphor, is being used to depict the swiftness that God would bring this judgment on them and the anger of God. Is that what you would get? My Bible
1: actually
0: has a footnote that says, That's good. Thanks. That was good. What Rita brought out, that it is a metaphor. It's used also in Psalm 68, 4. By the way, there's several other places also. That's, that's one. Uh, it was used, by the way, whenever the writers used it, the Jewish prophets spoke in the language, just like, well, when you speak today, if you're writing or preaching something you want somebody else to understand, those of you that have had any speech at all, what is the first thing they, they tell you? Does it do any good to communicate to people unless you're using their language? The first year I was, when I started teaching the public school system, I taught fourth, fourth, fifth grade. And then the last years I taught seventh and eighth before I became principal there. The first thing I had to learn in teaching fourth and fifth grade is that I could not communicate with them unless I used their language. I, could, I, had, I had to speak in, 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 with material that they could understand. When I got to the eighth grade, I had to teach in the language that they could they could understand me in and in any group you're speaking uh, when I preach uh, over here at Collins I don't say some things in the same way that I would say them if I was speaking to a different audience someplace else that whatever audience you're talking to you've got that in your mind and you're communicating okay the writers these great inspired prophets were no different they didn't go around preaching to people and making up phrases that these people didn't know what they meant. All of these phrases they used were common among the people. The Jews, in speaking of the swiftness of their God, spoke of him coming on the clouds, riding the clouds. And see, today we've got jet planes and things of that nature. They didn't have anything like that then. So the swiftest thing they could think of that covered the most ground was the clouds. Those idols have got to be carried by... On ox carts, or by a donkey, but our our God rides the clouds, and so it was a metaphor used in in that way. Well, if that's the case here, would it be unusual that when Jesus talks to the Jews about the judgment that He's bringing on them, that He uses the term that He would come on the cloud that He would come in the clouds? It's a, it's the same. Keep in mind that this is their Bible right here, the Old, the Old Testament. Okay, now. Turn over here to Isaiah 34. In between
1: there, Paul 30 and 26 is the one with the use of the moon and the sun and all when the Lord come.
0: 30 and verse
1: 26. Mm-hmm. It says in that day beginning back on 23 and then it says the moon will shine like the sun. The sunlight will be seven times brighter like the light of seven full days when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people. He heals
0: the wound. He heals. Okay, look at that. And that judgment situation there, in thirty and verse twenty-six, the moon will shine like the sun. Do you believe there's ever been a time when the moon shined like the sun? Yeah. And the sunlight will be seven times brighter. Do you believe there's ever been a time when the sunlight was seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days? When the Lord binds up the bruises of His people and heals, what is He? He's going to bind up their bruises. What is He saying? He's depicting the happiness and the brightness that's going to take place in their hearts as a result of their binding up the wombs by saying it'll be like the sun was seven times brighter and the moon was shining like the sun. So it's a, it's a perfect metaphor to, to convey the thinking that's involved there. Okay, look at the 34th chapter. Let's see. 34, let's see, let's read through, 1 through 5.
1: Come near you nations and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. The dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. And all the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled, like shriveled figs from the big tree. My sword has struck its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed.
0: Okay. Who is the judgment situation there applied to? Okay, on Edom. And he says, come near you nations, listen, pay attention you peoples. Let the earth hear. Okay, he wants everybody to know. Notice the term, the Lord is angry. And his wrath is upon all their armies. Okay, he's going to totally destroy them. But then look at verse 4. When God passed judgment on Edom, and he did. Edom was destroyed, it was wiped out, just like he said. Did the stars of the heaven literally dissolve? Was the sky rolled up like a scroll? Did the starry host fall? Like withered leaves from a vine? Like shriveled figs from a fig tree? Uh, My sword has drunk its fill in heavens? What does that mean literally? It descends in judgment on Edom? Did he have a literal sword that descended in judgment on Edom? Well, again, I think we can see that uh, what about even the mountains being soaked with blood? Well, there's going to be a lot of people killed, but were the mountains literally? Literally all the mountains soaked with blood? Or do we have poetic metaphors depicting the wrath of God? By the way, think about it. Can, isn't that really a beautiful way of depicting the wrath of God? The stars cast down, the, all of these things of the elements talked about. I can't think of a better way that, that you would actually depict uh, the wrath of God. Well, when Isaiah does this, he does it as something that is very, very common in his day. Uh, Isaiah wasn't the only person using those metaphors when speaking of the wrath of God and his judgment that was going to come.
2: Didn't uh, in some of the things that Saddam Hussein was saying back before the war, didn't he use a lot of metaphors <laughs> like that?
0: That's a real good, Mark. Uh, I don't know, did all of you, back when the war was going on, Before it started. Now, he didn't say too much after got. But did you listen to all the talk by Saddam Hussein and the very type language you're using and and how the, the, the desert was going to be soaked with blood and the bodies would be piled so high and he used all kinds of figurative terms and we thought, what is this wild man talking about, you know? But this is, by the way, in their vernacular today, they use a lot of exaggeration and a lot of figurative language. In fact, it's, it's very interesting. Look at in the Arabs. Uh, George Lamsa, who is from Syria and is a devout Christian, converted from that background. Uh, in his books, makes mention of the fact that those people in that part of the world still use this type of language. They still use hyperbole. They still exaggerate to get a point across. Uh, to show you the exaggeration, David or Saul has slain his thousands david his ten thousands you believe david literally killed ten thousands or saul even killed thousands individually or were they just making a point that man david has wiped out a whole lot more philistines than saul and that's the way they expressed it or when when uh god says i've got seven thousand that haven't bowed the knee to baal as he's saying i've got literally seven thousand people out there or is he saying like Jesus did with no, not Peter, not seven, not seven times, but seven times, 70 times. What well, is is Jesus saying 490? Th- those people used hyperbole. They used metaphors. They used idioms. They lived at a time when there was no printing press. The, the people didn't have a copy of the Bible. They didn't have books to read. All, all writing was written by hand. The scribes wrote it all. So put yourself in an environment where people don't have books and you're a prophet of God. They tended to use language that people could grab hold of and that they could remember and would stick in their mind. But Jesus does the same thing when he talks about the prodigal son and other things in the New Testament. He's talking to these people in stories and in forms that without having a book that they could inject in their mind and remember all the events perfectly. And and the the Old Testament is, is spoken to a people who do not have the written documents, other than the scholars and all of this poetic language in fact why do we today why do we use poetry just because it's pretty what is what are some of the things you can do with poetry that you can't do with prose is it one of the things that in poetry you can say a whole lot with a few words
1: expressive.
0: right very expressive you can express your emotions uh, look how many songs that really use very few words and yet say tremendous things. And so, with poetry and figurative language, and by the way, we're full of it today. When, when in church, when we sing about Canaan land and crossing Jordan, can you imagine how that sounds to people who come into our midst and don't have the background of, of the Bible? We're not talking about crossing Jordan or going to uh, Canaan line. Uh, and think about, in fact, sometimes, just pick up your songbook, and begin to look at it and see how much figurative language that you've got all through and yet you understand it perfectly because you know that it's standing for spiritual truths and it's being used in that way those people understood this just like you and I understand those songs that we sing with all that figurative language okay now let's do one more in Isaiah and then I'll go to, let's see Isaiah 65 Okay, now, we've had a judgment situation, and, and then after the judgment situation, there is going to be a, a new order of things. I want you to note, note the language that is uh, used here. Uh, let's see, to start, that read verse 17 through 25.
1: and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind but be glad and rejoice forever is what I will create and I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people of joy and I will rejoice over Israel and take delight in my people the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more how far do you want me to read? Uh, through
0: verse 25
1: Never remember, never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought of a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a They will build houses and dwell in them or plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses, and others live in them, or plant, and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain, will bear children doomed to misfortunes. They will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them. Before they call I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lamb will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord.
0: Okay, notice what happens there. There's been a judgment situation, okay? And then that Jerusalem is going to be reestablished and look and it says, I will rejoice verse 19 I will rejoice over Jerusalem, take delight in my people. And then he speaks of people living to an old old years. in other words, the people will be blessed. in verse 21 they will build houses and dwell, they will plant vineyards and eat. Uh, they'll no longer build houses and others live in them. See, that's what happened when the Israels were, Israelites were carried into captivity. They built houses. Their conquerors come in and took them and lived in those houses. So he, he says that, that it, there was a better time coming. But notice how he describes this. He talks about it in terms, I will create new heavens and a new earth. When the biblical writers use the term of creating new heavens and new earth, That, again, was language that was used in that time. And he's not talking about literal new heavens or a new earth. He's talking about a new order of things. And so when there had been a a judgment situation and the people had learned from their mistakes and and then that God was going to restore his people and they were going to become prosperous again and, and his law was going to be taught, he would use phrases like, I'll create new heavens and a new earth. And then notice in verse 25, he says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Well, he's not talking about a wolf and a lamb literally feeding together or a lion eating straw like an ox. But he's, he's talking about a period of peace and he depicts it in that way. The premillennialists to this day teach that the kingdom of God has not come on the earth because we don't have these things uh, they say that when God comes and He sets up His kingdom and the Lord reigns for the thousand years, you're going to have things like this: uh, the lamb and the wolf will be out eating together; uh, a child will play with a snake, and and you'll li- and, and all over the world they'll beat their swords to plowshares, and there will be peace. And it says that is evidence the kingdom has not come. Well, in the prophets, when they used and spoke of the new covenant to come, they simply used that in depicting a peace situation that would be among those people who were touched by the good news of that kingdom. And like you can even see there, at the very last verse, it says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. In other words, among those that are affected by the message of God, there would be that change and people's hearts would be changed and there would be peace that would reign through those people. And he uses this very highly figurative language. All right, now for years, and by the way, Wallace points this out in his book, he points out that from within our background, we, for years in discussing with the premillennialists, have pointed out to them that their mistake was they were taking figurative language as literal. And the way that they teach that the kingdom has not come and the Lord still is going to come back and He's going to reign for an earth is that they go to this very highly figurative language through the Old Testament and they say that has not literally been fulfilled that way, therefore the kingdom has not come, and they actually use that as an excuse. For the denominational division that exists among us, and it's with the attitude well, don't worry about all the division, don't worry about all the denominations we're divided into. When the Lord comes back, He'll get it straight, and then we'll have peace, that we won't really have the kingdom. What we have done from our background, as we pointed out, no, the New Testament plainly states, John the Baptist says that the kingdom of God is at hand. Don't, haven't we used that passage? And we say, now, He said right then, it was at hand. And then Jesus used the kingdom equal with the church. I will build my church and I will give unto you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then we go to passages to show that you have passed from light into darkness and been translated into his kingdom. And we say there's no contradiction there that this is all figurative language talking about the impact on the people that responded to the gospel. Well, I agree with that. That's why I rejected premillennialism. I believe that they do take figurative language and use it in a literal way. But then we turn a right around take the same types of figurative language and use it literal in still another way Now, of course all we're concentrating on tonight is the passages where without exception every single solitary judgment passage that you're going to find in the new testament i believe you're going to find it's parallel in the old testament and it's talking about specific events and it's using these poetic metaphors to talk about those judgment situations now another figurative thing turn over to isaiah 26 Oh, let's see. We don't have the time to read the whole thing, so I'll pick a... Darren, would you read verse 1? And then verses 14 and 15, and verses 19 and 20 of 26.
2: In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have, we have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwark. They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. Therefore thou, therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them, and made all their memory perish. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed and far to all the ends of the earth. The dead men shall live together with all the dead bodies; shall they rise? Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. And thy dew is as the dew of the earth, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut the doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, till the indignation be overpassed
0: Okay. In verse 21, did you see the Lord is coming out of His dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins? Okay, now look at chapter 27. We're dealing with the same situation. In that day, in other words, the same thing we've been talking about. Verse 7. Has the Lord struck her as he struck down those who struck her? Has she been killed as those were killed who killed her by warfare and exile? You contend with her. With his fierce blast, he drives her out. As on a day the east wind blows. By this then will Jacob's guilt be atoned for, and this will be the full fruitage of the removal of his sin. Okay? Then in verse 12, in that day, and he goes on. All right. The context is where judgment has been passed on God's people by another country. But now they've paid the penalty. They've seen their mistakes. They then rise up and they fight. And they come out victorious. Okay? Okay? And they had learned learned from their experience and all. But notice now, their exile is what he's doing. Verse 8 of chapter 27, he's talking about their exile and how they were contended with. But then Jacob's guilt was atoned for. Okay, but then from within that context, you read, speaking of their enemies in verse 14. These are the enemies of Israel. They are dead and live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin you wiped out all memory of them and you have enlarged the nation in other words the enemies have been defeated they're not going to rise again but look what he says of israel verse 19 your dead will live their bodies will rise you who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy your dew is like the dew of the morning the earth will give birth to her dead notice there in depicting the rise of israel And coming back out of their exile and all, he uses the picture of a resurrection from the dead. And of the enemies that were defeated, their dead did not rise. But of the Israelites, their dead would live. Their bodies rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. The dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And then again, see the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people for their sins. To punish the earth for their sins in verse 21. Alright, now, this was so common, in fact, flip over to Ezekiel, the uh, 37th chapter, and here again we have a situation where Israel has been defeated because of their sin. They're going into captivity, but then God will deal with their captors, and Israel will come up out of their captivity, and the captors will be defeated. And notice how he depicts this. Uh, Let's see. uh, uh, Verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out. The Lord set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back among them. Okay, he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? Okay, begin there in verse uh, 4. David, do you want to read that verse 4 through about verse uh, 12, uh, chapter 37 of, of Ezekiel? Okay, and remember the time frame. Ezekiel was carried into Babylonian captivity in about 597-598 B.C. Daniel had been carried in captivity in 605. In 586, Jerusalem is destroyed by Babylon. The Jews are in despair. God has already told the Jeremiah that the captivity would last for 70 years and then he would pass judgment on Babylon. Now... Ezekiel is, is being given a, a vision here that God wants him to preach to the people. Notice how he depicts Israel's rising up and coming back and being restored to their city. Okay, beginning with verse 4.
3: Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and let flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared upon, upon them, and the skin covered them. There was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man and say to it this is what the sovereign lord says come from the four winds of breath and breathe into these slain that they may live so i prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them they came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army then he said to me son of man these bones are the whole house of Israel they say our bones are dried up and our hope is is gone we are cut off therefore I prophesy and say to them this is what the sovereign lord says oh my people i am going to open your graves and bring you up to me and i will bring you back to the land of israel
0: okay notice in their being brought back out of captivity to the land of israel he depicts that by i will open your graves bring you up from the dead and bring you back to the land of israel he does the same thing in different words that Isaiah does in Isaiah 26. That when talking to a people who have been defeated, but then God is going to pass judgment on the enemies and he's going to bring them back to their land and they're going to build their city. And again, he depicts that by literally a vision where he sees a literal bodily resurrection from the grave. And in this time, Ezekiel sees the vision and he sees the bones coming together and the sinew and everything and he says he's bringing it tell them that I'm going to bring you from the graves again this was not unique with Isaiah and it was not unique with Ezekiel that the prophets used this in a figurative way the the bringing up literally of a bodily resurrection to depict when a people had been defeated but then they were going to rise up again and come and so it was used and, and it was used in a consistent way and they understood what it, the way that he was using it all right now oh. uh-huh. uh, how would
3: this how do uh, people who have a traditional interpretation uh, interpret this type of thing well, they
0: recognize it in they, other words they recognize
3: that, this is figurative
0: yeah oh yeah when uh, the in other words if you was to go to to any Old Testament commentator that I'm familiar with, and read what we just read there, he would understand that exactly. I mean, you couldn't, when you read the whole thing, you can't miss it because he tells you. He, tells you, he actually interprets it for you and tells you that that's, that's what it is and all. And there's, there's none that I'm even aware of that, that doesn't understand it in that way. Uh, what they do, Mark, is when the commentators are looking at this in the Old Testament relative to these individual countries, they have no problem whatsoever with this. They understand that the resurrection is used that way. They understand all of that figurative language and they see it and things like that in its context. It's when they come over to the New Testament and it begins to be used, then all of a sudden it becomes literal. And the exact same phrases that that they readily admit are figurative over there become literal over here. But when these letters are written in the New Testament and when Jesus speaks... Their Bible is the Old Testament Scripture. Their culture, their language is the the Old Testament. Nobody in the first century ever even had a New Testament where they could sit down and and look at all the individual things or divide it up in verses and chapters and things like that. They received these letters, and just like Shelley points out, letters are documents written to people dealing with things that are a problem to them right then. In other words, most of the letters by the way of the New Testament were written simply because a writer couldn't get to them remember when Paul writes Romans he said I was hindered in coming to you and so the end result is this is this letter uh, John says I would rather come to you but and I will come to you but right now I'll write this quickly you know with uh, pen and paper Paul writes to the Philippians when he's in jail okay most of